Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Lee Lowry joins us from Nanaimo, British Columbia. She was issued an impaired driving ticket when police went to her home two hours after she'd stopped driving. And she hadn't been drinking before she stopped driving. Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch on Democracy Watch giving the liberal government of Trudeau an F grade on openness. We'll hear from David Fraser, Canadian privacy lawyer on charter rights. Jane Gerster from Global News. More news on disabled Mounties being forced out of their jobs. And Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale and Michelle Simpson, Beauties and the Beast. You'll hear them talk about Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott being at least running for independent MPs. Her name is Lee Lowry. This is a story that is, if you don't know it, and I would imagine most Canadians have heard the story, seen it reported on Global News. Um, Richard Zussman did a tremendous job reporting on it. And uh, Lee Lowry is a resident of Nanaimo, British Columbia, who's never had any difficulties with the law or the police. Not until five RCMP officers arrived at her door, and Lee Lowry had invited them after they had called her. I'm not going to say any more about the story, about what happened, because Lee Lowry joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Lee, thank you very much for taking the time. I read your story. I watch your story. I think about what happened to you, and I frankly, I just shudder that that could happen to anybody in this country. Thank you for having me to start with, Roy. I appreciate you allowing me to um, be a voice for this um, horrible um, communist law that has been put forward. Before that day, before that day, were you aware of this new law, which allows police to legally administer a breathalyzer, even though there's no sign of any impairment of any driver, and that police may come to your home up to two hours after you arrived home, after driving, and demand a breathalyzer. Were you aware of that law before they came to visit you? Absolutely not. So let's talk about what happened. Can you walk us through what happened that day, 2017, right? Yes. No, this is... 2017, 2019. I'm sorry, 2019. What am I, what am I thinking? Um, so, uh, it was what, what, April 13th, 2019, Roy. Yeah. So, so what happened? Walk us through the timeline of the okay. day. What, what went on? Uh, my boyfriend and I were um, heading over to Vancouver to my sister's home in Maple Ridge um, on the Saturday, and we were going to go pick up his children in Williams Lake um, the following day. I had a medical appointment that we stopped in um, and took care of, and then we were hungry, so we stopped by the um, local pub near my sister's house and had um, each had something to eat, and we each had a uh, drink. And from there, we, we were only there for probably 45 minutes, and my sister lives very close to there, so we arrived at her house about 10 minutes later. We had picked up some beer on our way home. 
she's got a beautiful property with a nice pool. We were sitting by the pool um, enjoying a, a, a beer, as most Canadians do. And uh, about an hour and a half after we arrived at my sister's residence, I received a phone call from the RCMP. And basically, they, in, in a nutshell, they had said to me that there was something um, that, of, a, of a, a very um, personal nature that they had to speak to me about. And they were, they were wondering where I was and if they could come and talk directly to me. And of course, I found this very strange, but the first thing that came into my mind was that something had happened to my mother or to my sister that had, was um, out of the country at the time. So I found an envelope with her with her address on it and basically invited them over. Uh, approximately 45 minutes later, um, when I answered the door, there were five police officers in the driveway with multiple police cars and I i mean of course I thought the, thought the worst and then I was told that um, an anonymous caller had phoned the RCMP and um, allegedly I had um, been driving erratically and I said, well, I, I, I haven't even been driving. I said, I've been sitting at the pool for the last couple hours. And she said, well, when's the last time that you had a drink? And I said, well, I'm, I was actually having a drink when you pulled up here. And then the next thing I knew, they were telling me that I had to take a breathalyzer test. And I was very confused. I, 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 I said, I think you have the wrong person. Um, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. They, they said that I was detained. And I, I said, well, I've been, ha I've just drank a couple beer by the pool. I said, I, I said, I'm, I probably am impaired now and I'm not a big person. And she said that, that she asked me when the last drink I had was, and I said, well, I, I had a sip just before I answered the door. And so then they told me that I had to wait 15 minutes because they wanted to make sure my blood alcohol was up as high as it could be, I guess. Um, and then they um, performed the breathalyzer. And I failed, which I, did not surprise me. I had told them, like I had explained to them that, you know, we had been home for a couple hours. I invited them into the, into the house and I said, I could show you what I've had to drink since I've been home. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have no problem doing that. I did not realize it was illegal to drink on private property. And I really didn't get a lot of answers. Um, they gave me the breathalyzer. They said I had failed. And then they started um, talking a lot of um, legal jargon, and, which I, I wasn't really familiar with, but I'm also in shock at this time, right? And then they said that they would have they, they, they had to put me in the back of the police car and then i i mean i've never had a problem with the law in my life i've I, that was just horrifying to me and then i and as i as they were putting me in they were telling me that i could have a second test and i didn't understand what they were saying what, what they were meaning by that and so I said, well, she said, when they told me they were going to put me in the police car, I said, well, 
I want to take the second test. And they said, well, you know, you've already decided that you didn't want to. And into the police car I went. Then a few minutes later, they came out, came, came back, let me out. They served me with um, some papers that were explained to me that it was a, a immediate roadside prohibition. And I said, but, but I wasn't driving. And she said that that didn't matter. Um, that I'd asked enough questions. And then the next thing I know, a tow truck is pulling into my sister's driveway. And I said, well, you're not going to take my vehicle, are you? And she said, yes, we're taking your vehicle. It'll be impounded for 30 days and you're getting, and you'll have a 90 day suspension on your driver's license. Um, which also included um, a $500 fine, a $930 driving safe driving course I would have to take, oh my God. A $250 license reinstatement, approximately $1,000 for towing and storage fees, not to mention that I would have to take um, three months leave without pay at work as I require a license to do my job, and I wouldn't be able to travel to the United States for five years. I'm sitting in my back, my sister's backyard, having a beer. I, this is absolutely stunning to it, hear. It's it, 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 it's even hard to say it because, you know, when I was trying to explain it to people, they're like, "There's no way they could." There's no. I said, "They, there's way. They, they did." So you know, you know, Lee. When when this law when this law was first introduced, and then when it was passed, we talked about it on the air, and I just I was just so. Uh, outraged at 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 the law, and now we have the actual story of the application. So the police call you, and they tell you there's something personal they want to talk to you about. So yeah. so you do what any of us would do. Well, come on over, and you start well, to have concerns. What? Wrong. No, it's like what do they want to talk to? I would have the same thoughts you did. Somebody I know hurt. Some something happened, uh, you know. It's, uh, I, I'd start to I'd start to worry about you know friends and and maybe family and 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 then and then to have five officers and multiple cruisers pull up. Uh, that's that just raises the anxiety levels even more, and then to go through what you experienced uh, would just make most people. Confused. Um, I was confused. I was. I was. I yeah, mean, I mean, I was how are you supposed to? How are you supposed to deal with this? Because, because I was trying to understand what was going on, but really, um, the it seems that that the one police officer um, was. Uh, I'm going to use the word angry because there, two of the police officers left after the after then I initially um, greeted them. And I was saying, why are you doing this to me? I've done nothing wrong. And, you know, the other two police officers were looking at the ground. And this one, she was just angry. She, she was determined to do what she was going to do. She didn't want to hear my side of the story. She didn't want me to show her the evidence of what I, I, had, I had had to drink. I was I was fully cooperating, saying yes, I have been drinking, but 
Let me ask you. Let me ask you to just restaurant and having a a, a drink with your lunch is not illegal. No, it isn't. And and if one drink for most people is not going to put them over the limit. If anybody else in this country listening to this program right now on the Chorus Radio Network has had a similar experience or had an experience with police coming to your door up to two hours after you stopped driving and were home and have demanded a breathalyzer of you, if you've had a similar experience, please send me an email to roy at roygreenshow.com. I'll treat your information completely confidentially. I'll get in touch with you. And uh, we'll find out what happened to you. Let me just um, let me just read a little bit from uh, Richard Zussman's story on Global News, and um, um, Richard writes that uh, Lowry was issued a 90-day license suspension, 30-day vehicle impoundment. She was also required to take a driving course. On top of that, she had to figure out how to get home to Nanaimo, and her boyfriend's kids were stuck in Williams Lake. Lowry eventually won her case in court, but she will never get back the expenses she had to pay, nor the legal fees. In total, Lowry says the ordeal cost her about $3,500 in total with lawyers' expenses, travel, taxis, and vacation hours. And a lawyer, uh, Jerry Steele, who, uh, who Richard Zussman quotes in the story, says this latest case, Lowry had her rights infringed upon. The police are abusing new rights and authorities under the criminal code, Steele said. They can only initiate a mandatory demand if someone is driving a vehicle. Did they, did, did you blow over when they had you uh, take the breathalyzer, Lee? Yes, they did. Okay, and you'd been, but you'd been at that pool for close to two hours by that time, or two hours, over and you had a few, hours. over two hours, and you had a few beers. Yeah. So that could be you, not only you, it could be me, it could be anybody. Um, the, the, the thing, Roy, I actually asked them, the, the police officers, I said, so, because I was trying to wrap my head around what they were doing to me. And I said, but I've been home for two hours. Like, I want you to okay. tell let, let me, let me just let, let me just ask you a couple of questions, because we, okay. I, I need to get some answers in the time we have here with you. Sure. Uh, so that everybody across the country understands what happened. They took you away in the police car? No, they did not. Okay, but they were going to. They threatened to because if I wouldn't get into the, when they when they went to put me in the police car, I said, "Well, why are you doing this? I'm complying with everything that you're saying." Right. And they said, "You're detained. If you don't if you don't get in the police car, we will put handcuffs on you wow. and take you downtown." Wow. So so fortunately, I'm glad you didn't just accept this. You uh, you went to court. How did that go? I mean, what happened when you went to court? Um, actually, I don't go to court. It's uh, um, my lawyer. My lawyer's actual name is um, Jennifer Taran out right. of Victoria. She she works for um, Jamie Carr and Associates. Okay, so she went on your behalf. Yeah, and, and it, it was there were so many um, inconsistencies. Um, let me see. Um, Jennifer was able to provide numerous lies that the, I, I actually, I only received the actual police report yesterday and I was appalled. Like there's obviously perjury on the part of the police. There were so many lies told as I read the report, it sounded like they were talking about someone else, that it wasn't, it wasn't me. And you had had, uh, I'm getting some emails from people who want to know, and you've already said it several times, but let's just repeat, you had had one drink when you went for lunch with your boyfriend. Yes. 
And that's not the issue. No, that's not the issue. This so, is about the fact our rights, are, our rights as human beings are eroding away, and people seem to just carry on with their lives blindfolded. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how Parliament passed this piece of legislation. That up to two hours after you get home, after having driven, the police can come to your house and demand a breathalyzer. When I get home, if I if I happen to, let's just say I happen to have meet a buddy on the way home and I have one beer, let's just say, and I get in my car and drive home, let's just say, and then I'm home and I have another couple of beers because it's a nice summer evening, let's just say, and then there's a phone call from the police and they arrive at my door and they say, Mr. Green, you need to take a breathalyzer test because somebody said you were driving erratically. Whoa, hold on. What happened to you is absolutely abhorrent. Absolutely abhorrent. Thank you for spending the time with us, Lee, and sharing your story. I much appreciate that. I'm going to stay in touch with you because I think we'll need to talk again, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Any any time I would... Uh... If I, if I may say one thing before before we end this, sure. Is I would like to to tell every anybody and everybody out there that's listening to please the reason that I was able to fight the RCMP and the government was because I pulled my cell phone out and I recorded everything. As Good soon idea. as I realized there was a problem, Good you idea. record everything. Good because idea. What they said and what happened. That was my proof. Sound and there advice. Were so many lies that the police officers told that I was okay. was proven with my video. We and will I be want people to know that they're allowed to do that. We will be back in touch. Have to protect themselves. We'll be back in touch, Lee. Thank you so much for spending the time today, and thanks for sharing this with the rest of the country. People need to be aware. Thank you, Lee Lowry. As the Open Government Partnership Global Summit was being held in Ottawa, Open Government Partnership Global Summit has a little Orwellian ring to it, was being held in Ottawa, Democracy Watch issued its report card on the Trudeau Liberals' open government record. And the report card gives the Liberals an overall F grade. And I don't think that means fantastic. Um, there's also the story about Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion, who you sure I'm sure you'll remember, was appointed by the Liberals without any input from the opposition parties, and that broke parliamentary law. The Ethics Commissioner will not have his report on any ethical lapses by the government or the Prime Minister ready before the House rises for the summer in mid-June, so no chance to address Dion's eventual findings in Parliament. How convenient is that? Duff Conacher joins me, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's a professor of law and politics at the University of Ottawa. He's the author of Canada Firsts and more Canada Firsts. Sometimes, uh, Duff, thank you for the time. Sometimes it's, uh, it's amazing to people that, I don't know why, maybe it's a national inferiority thing, but that we came first, that we've invented anything, that we're first in anything. We're first in that little game that's taking place in Toronto, basketball. That's right. That's Some, right. Um, actually created in the U.S., but, but uh, created by uh, Naismith, who was a Canadian. So you had to give the American angle, eh? Yes, <laughs> but uh, we've done some. We've we've come up with some fabulous global inventions. There's a little thing called insulin, which was which helped millions of people survive. 
let's talk about let's talk about the things that are going on on the report card from uh, Democracy Watch on open government for the uh, or from the Canadian government, uh, the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau. Let's start with that. So um, the Open Government Partnership Global Summit uh, is underway. Was underway. I don't know if it's still going on or not. But no, it's you, finished now. It's finished now. Yep. Okay, good. So you gave them, uh, Democracy Watch gave them an F, and I see that Bill C-58 plays a prominent part here. What's going on with C-58? How did they fail? Well, the Liberals uh, promised, essentially, that government information should be open by default. And that means proactively disclosed. You don't have to request it. And uh, it's just up there on the Internet, searchable databases to find records. And they have... Um, made a few changes to make things a bit more easy to search for. Uh, MPs' expense reports, filing and access to information requests and, and tracking them, um, some details about fundraising events. But that's not really open government. That's just open data. You know, that information was there already, and the Liberals have made it easier to access and to search. Open government means all the information, including the information the government doesn't want people to see, is put up on the Internet and proactively disclosed. And they have broken that promise completely. The information commissioner, uh, Suzanne Legault, who finished her term about a year ago, she um, issued her her final news conference and news release was that the Trudeau Liberals have made the federal government more secretive. And uh, that's their record. So that's a failing grade. And uh, one that I really have cottoned in on or focused in on is the one that has to do with uh, the Lobbying Act. And you and I talked about that last weekend, and we'll talk about it again in a few minutes' time. But just just in just a brief synopsis here, lobbyists, because of MPs' decisions and actions and, and, and uh uh, yeah, parliamentary actions they've undertaken. Lobbyists are now free to provide trips to MPs, unethical trips to equally unethical MPs. Yes, and MPs wrote the rules for both themselves and the lobbyists, and they've showed the big problem when people get to write the rules for themselves. They but put in loopholes. It's pathetic, isn't it? Really, seriously. If you look at the dictionary definition of pathetic, and, it, and you'll find that there. Yes, it's, it's called uh, an ethics code for MPs, ethics code for lobbyists. And uh, the MPs code actually has a rule. It says, MP shall not, is not allowed to accept any gift that a reasonable person would say is being given to influence them. And the very next section says, however, they're allowed to accept trips. They can take along their family members, their friends, their associates, anywhere in the world as many times as they want, and lobbyists are allowed to give them that gift. And the lobbyist uh, ethics code, they put the same loophole in there, that lobbyists are allowed to give the gift. So it, it's essentially a system of legalized bribery because they made it legal. But, you know, the lobbyists, the MPs know what the lobbyist is lobbying for, and they know that the gift of the trip is coming from the lobbyist. So a bribe is when you give someone a gift, uh, money, benefit, any, anything of value, and you ask them to do something in return. Well, these are lobbyists. You know what they want in return, and you're accepting the gift. But you they've know, legalized it. It's you, legalized bribery. You know, Duff, this is really deeply disturbing. Let's talk about this right now. This, this is very, very disturbing because these are the very people, as we've said many times, who are elected 
who are elected based on trust. The, the voters give them by majority the trust to go to Ottawa, be members of the federal government, be paid very well, be uh, participants in an exceedingly generous pension plan, and in return, they're supposed to provide us with honest, pragmatic management of the national affairs. What they have done by this one act, they've compromised all of that. If they change the rules so that they can be um, rewarded with gifts uh, unethical gifts of trips by lobbyists in order then to do the favor for the lobbyist the lobbyist wants. The whole the whole house of cards just drops, falls. It's fundamental. Good governance means you're upholding the public interest, which means you can't owe anyone who is pushing their private interest. And what's weird about it, really weird, and it's been going on for decades since we started in, in uh, 25 years ago with Democracy Watch. We've been calling for this, uh, this kind of thing to be stopped. And the MPs, um, only about 60 or 70 of them out of 338 now, go each year on these trips. So the large majority of them don't go, but they're all tainted by them because it's MPs from every party that go. And that means all the parties are tolerating it and all the parties are backing it. And this majority of MPs that don't go on the trips, if they would just, it would take one day, they would introduce the, the resolution to change the rules, and the next day the rule would be changed. That's, yeah. how, that's how long it takes. There's no reason why they can't do this before the end of June. To do it b- b- before, before the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, and, and Parliament closes for the election at the end of June, and absolutely no reason why this rule cannot be changed finally. Uh, a majority of MPs don't go on the trips. Why are they letting the 60 or 70 that go each year embarrass them all yeah. and make them all look unethical Well, because party? I, I think because there really hasn't been a spotlight shot on this, there, and that's what needs to happen. And that's what's happening now. You're doing that through the by the revelations by, by Democracy Watch and by your own. Now, are we talking about MPs from all parties? If we're looking at the 60 to 70 MPs who are, ex, are accepting these unethical trips from lobbyists and the MPs making it possible for themselves to accept these trips. Are there? Are we talking about MPs from all parties? All parties. And that's what's so weird, is that you have representatives, like Charlie Angus from the NDP came out when this ruling came out from the lobbying commissioner saying, no, I've looked at it and the loopholes that MPs put in the, their own rules and the lobbyist rules say this is, this is legal, it's legal for these trip gifts to be given by lobbyists to MPs. And Charlie Angus from the NDP came out and said, this is wrong, it should change. Peter Kent from the Conservatives came out, was also contacted by the reporter, said, this is wrong, this should change. A Liberal MP said, this is wrong, this should change. <laughs> well, then change it. Well, then change it. It would take one day, literally. It's not even a bill. It, you know, it has to go through the House and the Senate. These are rules only for members of the House, and then senators have their own separate rules. And both of them can change those rules in one day. They introduce a motion, if it passes... Then it's changed. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the piece of the chocolate cake that's sitting on the table, except there's a piece missing, and there's a little kid standing beside the table, and he's got chocolate smeared all over his mouth, and the little kid says, "Wasn't me." Wasn't me. Yeah. It wasn't me. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's, it embarrasses them repeatedly. It makes all MPs and all parties 
look unethical, self-interested, not interested in upholding the public interest or protecting yep. the public's concerns, yep. and uh, they won't change this. They won't take one day out of their calendar to change this. Just looking at this, uh, the release from democracywatch.ca, the uh, liberal government, the Trudeau government getting an F as far as open government commitment, or at least they're following through on the promises they made to open government. Here's a couple of, uh, just going through four of them here. The secret trips to the Aga Khan's private island in the Bahamas. Finance Minister Bill Morneau's secretly owning $30 million in shares in his family's company, Morneau Chappelle Incorporated, keeping it secret how many lobbyists have helped organize fundraising events for the liberals. Hmm. Uh, giving preferential access to the PM and cabinet ministers to secret bundler fundraisers and the secret effort to influence the attorney general's decision concerning the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. It goes on. So, Duff, let's go back to this issue of the the trips, the um, the unethical trips. And we have the prime minister of Canada taking a trip to the Bahamas, taking along a cabinet minister and some of his pals. And uh, clearly, there's nothing wrong with that until you took it to federal court. And then the federal court said, hold on, whoop, red flag, something very wrong here. Speak to that, please. Yes, so we were talking um, for the break about MPs uh, putting a loophole in their code that they're allowed to accept this gift of, of uh, a trip from a lobbyist. But cabinet ministers and the prime minister and senior government officials, cabinet staff and those kind of people have a different uh, rules. It's called the Conflict of Interest Act. That's the name of the law. And because of their extra power, they thankfully have a stronger rule on gifts where they're not allowed to accept any gift that might reasonably be seen to have been given to influence them. And the uh, the Prime Minister was found guilty by the Ethics Commissioner in December of 2017 of accepting the gift from the Aga Khan of the trip. And uh, someone filed a complaint with the lobbying commissioner, we don't know who, uh, about the Aga Khan giving that gift to Trudeau. And the lobbying commissioner uh, ruled and, and issued the ruling only to that person who filed the complaint. So it was a secret ruling until the CBC did a story about the fact that we had filed a complaint. And then that person came, contacted the CBC and said, actually, that issue has been ruled on already secretly by the lobbying commissioner. I'm the only one who knows because I was the complainant and I received the complaint letter. And uh, then we learned about it. And so we took the lobbying commissioner to court to challenge that ruling. And we won. The court ruled that the lobbying commissioner's ruling was unintelligible, it was just ignoring the whole purpose of the lobbyist ethics rules, known as the lobbyist code of conduct, which was to prevent unethical lobbying and ordered the commissioner to take another look at the whole issue. And unfortunately, the Trudeau liberals have appealed that ruling, trying to protect Trudeau's family friend, the Aga Khan, from accountability for unethical lobbying. You know, it's it's stunning, really, when when you think about the the significance of what's going on, and the fact that they would have the goal to appeal a federal court ruling that is so clearly uh, clearly defines what went on, and all they're trying to all they're doing, and you know this better than I, they're treading water, 
They're trying to make it go away. They're trying to take the focus off it. And maybe by the time it gets to uh, goes beyond uh, the appeal, people will have forgotten. That's what they're hoping for. Yes. Well, they they won't forget if we win the appeal. Um, it will be in the news again. Yeah. But um, really, it's a very clear ruling. The lobbying commission we've argued for a whole decade has been not enforcing things properly. Amazing, she, isn't she it? Really, eighty-five percent of people off the hook that she caught violating the rules, let it's, alone it, the it, others that she didn't even catch. It's stunning. It really is stunning that you can. <laughs> these statistics are so readily available, and that person had that job. And we also have Mr. Mario Dion, the ethics commissioner, who was appointed by the by Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet in violation of parliamentary law because they didn't bring the opposition parties into into the discussion. And Mr. Dion is not going to have his report on the PMO's SNC Lavalin actions ready by the time the House rises for the summer, and it won't sit again until after the election. No, but thankfully, with reports under the, this law, the Conflict of Interest Act, that applies to, to the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers and their staff and senior officials, those reports can uh, have to be issued by the uh, Commissioner publicly whenever they're finished. Okay. So they do not have to be tabled in Parliament. Parliament does not have to be open for the report to be made Right. Public. It would be good, though, if it were, because then you'd have that parliamentary debate in, known as question period. That Doth- would help, yeah, but I'm sure the opposition parties will still comment on it, as I'm we sure. will, too, when the ruling comes out. And it better come out before the election. There's absolutely no justification for delaying it beyond Doth- Election Day. Thank you so much for the time. It's always great talking to you. My thank pleasure. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Duff Conacher, democracywatch.ca, the co-founder. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled three to two that the convictions of a Toronto man found by police with a gun and drugs must be thrown out because police were in violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms when they entered a private yard where men were engaged in conversation. Because the police climbed, as I understand it, over a low fence and asked Mr. Tom Lee for identification and the contents of a satchel, his Charter Rights were violated. The Supreme Court ruled this case is of particular importance to neighborhoods with large visible minority populations. Two lower courts had supported the police actions. David Fraser is one of this country's leading privacy lawyers and partner in McKinnis Cooper in Halifax. He's the author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. David, thank you very much for the time. And in layman's terminology, what happened here? How was the charter violated? Uh, happy to be here. Uh, in a number of ways, and, and you always need to look at these sorts of interactions with the police in a fully kind of contextual analysis. And one of the things the court really took note of and uh, and be, what took awareness of is the fact that individual members of our community experience interactions with police in different sorts of ways. So you had three police officers who were doing completely legitimate policing functions in a, in a kind of housing co-op sort of area. Uh, they were following up on some leads. They saw a number of young men kind of in their late teens, early 20s, just kind of talking in a backyard, in a private backyard that was surrounded by quite a low fence, something you could easily step over. You didn't even have to hop over it. And two of the police officers hopped the fence, went in and started speaking to the young men uh, and did a number of things that kind of took control of the situation, uh, blocking the entrance or, or the exit paths, 
asking questions about what's up, what's going on, what are you doing, do you guys live here? Uh, asking for ID, one of the young men was sitting on a sofa in this backyard, and his hands, yeah, I guess he was sitting on his hands, and, the, and one of the police officers directed him to uh, show his hands. And the court concluded that in, in all of those circumstances, all those individuals were being detained as far as the law is concerned. And not every interaction with the police is going to be a detention, but as soon as you're detained, uh, you have certain charter rights that come into, come into play. And, but because this was an arbitrary detention and they did not have any real legal authority to take control of these young people, their charter rights were violated. And while, so one of the police officers asked the young man what was in his bag, which the police officer had no legitimate basis to order, for example. He couldn't say, show me your bag. Uh, but in the context of a detention, when you're being asked or essentially told to do something by an officer in a uniform with a gun and a badge, uh, that indicates a certain amount of compulsion. The young man bolted, he ran, and uh, was stopped. The bag was searched, and there were drugs and, uh, and a firearm found within that, within that bag. And so what's, what's particularly interesting about this and the message that this sends, so certainly uh, they took note of the fact that, that these young people were of a racial minority, were in a, a neighborhood that is associated with a higher crime rate, took note of the fact that, that racialized communities are over-policed compared to the rest of the population, um, and also noted that the, that the young fellow in question, he was uh, 20 years old, he was small in stature, so a big cop interacting with him in an authoritative sort of way is going to lead you to conclude that you have been detained. And so as, as soon as the police officer stepped into the backyard, the detention happened. And the, and the court also noted that the, the cops were trespassing. They were breaking the law when they went into the backyard. They had no legitimate lawful authority to do that. They were not invited. And frankly, they could have just asked the young guys questions over the fence without uh, triggering that sort of apparent kind of police uh, police action. And so at the end of the day, we're, we have a decision where the court recognizes that, that in certain circumstances, even just kind of conversational interactions with the police can take on a form of detention and as soon as an individual is detained they have they have certain rights um, and uh, in this case when you look at the at overall so the the next question has to be okay well if if the charter rights have been violated what do we do with the evidence and it's not like in the united states where it's automatically thrown out the courts have to do an analysis and they have to say look would the admission of this evidence bring the administration of justice into disrepute so would it actually harm community perception of, of, of justice? And when you think of the seriousness of the offense, drugs and a handgun, that's a pretty serious offense where had the evidence been admitted, and actually both sides said in front of the court, look, if this evidence is admissible, then the guy's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So the question was, was it going to be admissible? And the court said, look, in, in these circumstances where the police had kind of so overstepped the bounds and had gone beyond the pale when it comes to interactions with citizens, uh, that that allowing the police to get a conviction out of that would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. This is, uh, it, it gets very complex. Now, let me ask you this, though. The courts appear to be conflicted on this. We had two Ontario courts supporting police. The Supreme Court of Canada, by one judge's decision, decided for the plaintiff. So is, is this now over uh, because the Supreme Court has been involved? Or is there, can it go elsewhere? And let me just extend this a little bit. Uh, you find an illegal firearm and drugs, as we, as you just mentioned. 
But the person in possession of these materials goes free, again, by a three to two decision by the Supreme Court. That's going to be questioned by many people. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that there's any doubt. And, uh, and it, there are things that are going to be controversial about the, the way the court arrived at this decision. So, so the lower court, the trial court judge, who actually had the witnesses, living, breathing witnesses in front of him, made certain findings with respect to what actually happened uh, in terms of kind of when did the detention occur. And, and also, there were differing views on the admissibility of the evidence as a result. And so I think we're going to probably see some, some controversy about, really, is it the role of an appellate court, so the, the Ontario Court of Appeal, or in this case, the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, to reanalyze factual findings made by a judge who actually had the witnesses in front of him. And that's always going to be a, a little bit controversial. Mm-hmm. There's, in, in this case, the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada often does, and appeal courts often do, they have interveners in front of them. So they have other parties who have said, look, we have a perspective that we can offer on this that will help the interpretation of the law. And so you end up with a, a broader worldview picture uh, when it comes to this this situation. Okay, let me just uh, ask you a, a different question, if I may. We're going to be speaking in the next hour with a woman in British Columbia who received a call from and was visited by five RCMP officers who, under new legislation, charged her with drinking and driving two hours after she arrived home. Uh, she had stopped with her boyfriend, from what I understand, on the way home, and they'd had lunch and they'd ha- each had one drink. Um, But then the police arrive hours later and charge her, uh, force her to take a breathalyzer. She wins the case in court, but she's out $3,500, and she said she feels like she lives in a communist country now. Uh, Is this piece of legislation going to find its way to the Supreme Court of Canada as well? Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt that the recent amendments made to the criminal code related to uh, kind of extending the police ability to coerce or require a blood sample or a breath sample is going to find its way there. Two hours after you get home. Well, that's right. And and there's a a legitimate reason why they wanted that added to the law, because, for example, imagine you have a car accident and you're on the side of the road. The police haven't gotten there yet. uh, And you happen to have maybe you're already drunk, but you happen to have a bottle of whiskey in the trunk. You, You down the bottle of whiskey. And the presumption will be now that, uh, that in fact, uh, that, that you were drunk at the time, rather than being able to easily introduce a defense that, uh, oh, well, you kind of drank that whiskey in order to, to settle your nerves, and which apparently happens. And so I, I appreciate that that's a concern, and that's something that perhaps the law should respond to. But going overboard, certainly it, it's not uncommon for me to uh, meet a friend on my way home from work and have a beer and then go home and have another beer with dinner. Um, that doesn't mean that I was driving with two beers in my system. And so any anything that, that kind of creates a legal fiction that works to the disadvantage of, of individuals who can be uh, not just accused of a crime, but convicted of a crime, a criminal conviction, yeah. enormous consequences in this country. Uh, and uh, we need to be very, very careful about those. You know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I go home. I've been, I've been driving. Uh, I, might, I might have lunch with somebody. I may have one drink. Usually I just have a, a soda, but I might have a beer. Um, you know, actually, uh, probably one time out of a thousand I do that. And, uh, and, and then I go home and I have a drink. So now the police arrive and they say, okay, Mr. Green, breathalyzer time. 
Why? I've only been drinking at home. Doesn't matter. Breathalyzer, you're within the two hours we're charging you. <laughs> I only have 30 seconds here, David, but this this is a real, real problem. This has to go to the Supreme Court. Oh, I, I think so. And, and I think that uh, that likely the, the court will find that there's something significantly problematic with, yeah. with what we, you've just described. Always good talking to you. At Privacy Lawyer, David Fraser. Thank you, David. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. David Fraser. Uh, from McKenna's Cooper in Halifax. More disabled Mounties allege they were forced out. This is the newest and the latest in a series of global news stories concerning disabled RCMP officers being dismissed because of their disabilities. A very, very disturbing story, very necessary for us all to be aware of. Jane Gerster is a national online journalist for Global News, and she's been reporting on this. Jane, thank you very much for the time. And it's such disturbing news that anyone, and perhaps particularly RCMP officers, have been forced out of their jobs because of their disabilities. Just remind us, please, of the background on this story. Absolutely. So in about 2014, there was an amendment to the RCMP Act that removed stays to any decisions to discharge members. Um, It used to be that if the Mounties tried to discharge someone, they could actually say, no, I'm grieving this, and then they would keep their job while that process unfolded. So that was changed in 2014. And then at the same time, you had um, a commissioner standing order brought in that allowed for dismissal explicitly on the basis of a disability is defined under the under the Canadian Human Rights Act. Now, since you began reporting uh, that the Mounties uh, with disabilities have been forced out of their jobs, the issue has mushroomed. I was reading your story this morning, which reports the news division at Global being flooded with stories as Mounties tell their stories, some of them decades old. What are, can you share one story with us? Yeah, so I would say um, a lot of them have to do with um, raising concerns about the work environment. So a lot of the people come and say, you know, I was doing fine at work. I had maybe, you know, some eyesight issues or I had maybe, um, you know, other kind of similar, more, you know, minor issues. Um, And then they said, okay, I saw something inappropriate happen and then I raised concerns and then all of a sudden I, you know, was being targeted for, um, I was being targeted for a medical discharge. So, you know, I would stress that, you know, a lot of these, because there's simply so many, um, I have not been able to independently verify myself. But, you know, of the ones that I have been able to kind of look through the court documents, it's, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some concerning stories. No, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, this is a really, really important issue. And the RCMP counter your questions by saying, again, quoting your story, dismissal of disabled Mounties is a last resort, end quote. What does that mean? It means that they say that they do their very best to accommodate someone, and then it's only when they reach a point, you know, at a national level that they can't find a vacant job that someone is qualified for that they look at dismissal. And that's, you know, that's that's what they're saying. It just isn't jiving at all with what these members are saying, where they're just receiving kind of notice. I mean, one of the original people I wrote about was Patty Reed in Alberta, you know, Albertan born and raised. And the reason she was given is that they just couldn't find a clean air environment anywhere in southern Alberta for her, which, you know, she's working a different job now and breathing just fine. So, you know, there are there are, I think, questions that remain that we're trying to get answers to. And, you know, so far, a lot of a lot of these stories are being met with, you know, we can't comment on specific cases. Of course. That's the fallback position. Um, now, Sebastian Anderson's law firm 
you write, is representing two of the Mounties, saying they were, they were dismissed, and he's calling on Justin Trudeau to intervene. Uh, is the federal government taking any, any action? We've had statements from uh, the public safety minister spokesperson and uh, Trudeau's own statements last week where they said, you know, this is it's inappropriate to discharge anyone on the basis of a disability. Um, but we haven't actually had them come out and say whether or not they're going to take action. I mean, I got the fallback. We can't comment on specific cases response when I asked whether or not they would you know, do a review as requested by Sebastian Anderson. And I would, you know, I would just kind of stress he he's brought for clarity's sake two cases to the government to look at but realistically his firm has consulted with dozens of people and has been similarly inundated i mean you know the question this is the question of kind of whether or not the mounties are in the interim you know while they wait for their union uh, bargaining agent to be ratified whether they're appropriately you know protected in these circumstances is one that the government hasn't directly answered in any of my inquiries. And it's one that the Mounties and, you know, their future union uh, have said over and over again, can you just hit the pause button until we get a handle on what's going on? And that's something we've had no response on. Well, you're doing outstanding reporting on this story. And, it, you know, it, it, it reminds me of the disabled or PTSD-suffering Canadian Forces members, including members who'd fought in Afghanistan, not so long speaking or being forced out of the military before they reached the years of employment, which would affect their pension rights because of their disabilities. This is not, I mean, I see there's a parallel between the two stories. Great reporting, uh, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Jane Gerster from Global News on uh, this story uh, disabled people, disabled Mounties losing their jobs. And the most recent installment, you can find it at globalnews.ca. Lawyer calls for action as more disabled Mounties allege they were forced out. They're back. Catherine Swift, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working at Canadians.ca. How are you? Great, Roy. Great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. Beauties and the Beast, Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun and now vice president of Cambria, Canada. Now she controls the money. <laughs> How are you, Linda? Roy, it's great to be on with you again. Well, it's great to have you back. And Michelle Simpson, who was a liberal member of parliament and was the seatmate to Justin Trudeau during question period, Something that uh, we've taken to the bank many times, as Michelle has shared with us, what went on during those, at least some of those s s sessions when Trudeau showed up. With uh, no, to be back. Great to be, have you back. And Trudeau, I had no idea what you were going to be talking about, but he did bring clips about him. So, uh, let's start with the run, running for the independent uh, MP position with, uh, with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. What do you make of it, Michelle? Not surprised. Do you, do, you, do you believe that she is, her intent is to be an independent MP or just to wait out Trudeau and the no, October 21st I, I election? I think it's her intent. Do I think she has a great shot? No. Um, I don't think either one of them do. To be elected because as independent MPs? To the party system, boy. You don't think that you don't think that the that the voters in uh, Vancouver Granville will elect Jody Wilson Raybould as an independent. I don't believe that either of them will be reelected, although they deserve to be. 
Okay, let's take this around the table. Linda, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you know what? Let me applaud them because what they're saying is they're going to run as independents, and that means that they're no longer beholding to. We all know it. We get a majority government, and the leader is like a dictator. We've seen Justin Trudeau behave badly after he said he was going to change the spirit of that. So this is called consensus democracy, and i got to tell you, I love it. And if you look at it, Switzerland, Sweden, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, other countries have a form of this where we get rid of partisan politics and people get to represent the voter. So will they win? I'm like Michelle, I have my doubts. We are stuck in a system that I don't think is fair to the voters, and, uh, and I applaud these ladies for standing up. All right, Catherine Swift. I, I, I want to mention that there is a consensus party of Ontario that has starting this grassroots thing of independence, and the closest we got, Roy, let's remember, the Taxpayer Protection Act that Mike Harris passed was the closest to direct democracy that we got, and of course we know what happened it. Good old Dalton McGinney threw it out the window. Okay, so hold on, hold on now. So because we're looking at a national picture here, so we get get the get into the provincial things. We're going to get a little. I understand. Off what course I mean, here. it's federally, this could be embraced. But it, is the timing right? Probably not. And I agree with Michelle. Catherine Swift, I, I, Scott Newark and I have talked many times about this, former Crown Attorney in uh, in Alberta, uh, so incredibly well politically connected. We've always said that if we had 20 to 24 independent MPs in every parliament, boy, this country would be run differently. Oh, yeah. They'll <laughs> absolutely run differently. I think this will be a very interesting test because it's true that independents typically, you know, they don't have all the resources that an established party has, so they're very constrained with what they can do in their writings and so on. But I think this is a quite a unique situation. Has there ever been more high-profile uh, people in Canada that are then choose to run independently as, as, as these two women? Not, a, not in my, to my knowledge. So I, I even though the, the chances of an independent to get elected are not great as a rule, I think this might be an exception to that. But, Roy, from what you said earlier, I totally agree with you. This is a long game they're playing. They want to continue to be politicians. I believe they both want to continue to be liberals. They're just so disgusted with Justin Trudeau because they have, you know, been on the receiving end of his uh, vindictive <laughs> hissy fits that he seems to throw on a regular basis. And um, so they're sitting out this one on the liberal front, but I think they'll be totally back in the liberal fold once Trudeau's gone. You know, my feeling is that, you know, Mario Dion is going to be releasing his ethics report, and I was just talking to Duff Conacher about that a few minutes ago. He's going to be releasing his, his, his reports as ethics commissioner on uh, Trudeau and SNC. I think when that's released, and I wish it were released before Parliament rises, however it won't be, but it will be before the election, uh, October the 21st. When that is released, I just have a feeling we're going to find out more of what Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott have been hinting at about their concerns about this prime minister and his ethics. I think we'll hear more, hear more about that, and I think it's going to come into play on the 21st of October. It'll hurt Trudeau, and it will help, I think, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, both of whom I'd like to interview on this program, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Before we move on to anything else, Michelle and Linda, is there anything that you want to add to this discussion that we've been having you know, about... about uh, um, about Jody Wilson-Raybould and about uh, Jane Philpott running as independents. Michelle? 
you know, Roy, I can't help but think there's a lot more to all of this because Trudeau had a falling out, according to reports, with Gerald Butts. And Butts doesn't work for him anymore. And they were best friends. So I don't think he's pulling any strings. There's just a lot more that we don't know. So Trudeau and Butts... Not best friends anymore is what you're what you're saying, right? Not according to reports, and he left his job, and we don't know if he resigned or he was fired, but it was really strange. So, what's the potential scenario here? Pardon? What's the potential scenario that you're seeing? Well, that they did have a falling out, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more to this um, conspiracy and um, criminal, con- you know. And I think that's why uh, Jody left, because she didn't want to get involved. But somehow I think that Butts could... No, butts knows a lot more. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to start speculating about criminality because then yeah. we, you know, we're going into, into deep dark waters here. Um, Linda, what, what, the, the whole issue of this, and, and and Michelle just you know mentioned butts, and that makes me think of Wernick, and makes me think of SNC and the vomitorium. You know. Uh, still one of the great words. Uh, Michael Wernick gave us a keeper when he came up with vomitorium. I don't like the way he, you know, the context he used it in, but it's a terrific word. Do you see this, do you have a feeling that this SNC-Lavalin issue is not over? And I don't mean just generally. I mean as far as what we will find out about Jody Wilson-Raybould's concerns and Jane Philpott's concerns before October the 21st. You think we're going to find out more? You know, I hope we do, Roy. And I was listening to Doug Conacher. Way to go, Democracy Watch. Uh, you know, this report, we're, hopefully, as, as he mentioned, That's we're going to hear about Linda, it right? before the election. And uh, I think Michelle is right. There's a lot more to this than meets the uh, eye. Um, and, it, again, it, it, I just want to make a point. It's the arrogance. Justin Trudeau came to us and said that he was going to be a different kind of leader. He was not going to be arrogant and boss people around. Well, excuse me, but I think we have seen an example of that which has led to this and I, I, I applaud the ladies for standing up. I also will tune in tomorrow to hear John Nutziata. I'm a huge fan for what he did and you know he's going to tell you it ain't easy. Running well that's, that's, that's the but question. If he gets more information out there Roy and the actual Canadian gets to understand it better then all the better for democracy. You know that's the question that I want to ask John. What's it like to be an independent NP and remember Catherine you'll remember this when, when, uh, when John Nutziata Nunziata ran in 1997, he didn't just squeak by as an independent. He won that riding by more than 4,600 votes over the liberal candidate, Judy Scrone. 
Yes, yeah, and indeed he did. Uh, but, you know, I think on this whole issue, the fact that the Liberals have closed ranks after the, you know, Jody Wilson, Rabel, Philpott, Jane Philpott situation, and then after they were ejected from caucus, the fact they've closed ranks, every single um, committee in the House of Commons that they dominate, they have the majority, they've rejected any further investigation and so on. Come on, they've got tons to hide here. I don't think there's any possible other conclusion to reach. I'm going to, I, I find it's very interesting, though, that one of the Senate committees is going to be looking into the Vice Admiral Norman situation in more detail. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that unfolds. Um, but t- to me, there's a, what, I, what I'm waiting for, and, and this will probably happen only after Trudeau is actually out of power, because as long as he's in power, he has a lot of sway to exercise over a lot of people. So the, the fact that people like um, Wilson-Raybould and Phil Pot, but also that Selena, uh, you know, that, that Whitby MPP, or MP, sorry, who, who you said Trudeau yelled at her, and, and she got so fed yeah. up with them, yeah. she decided not to run again. You, you know, there's there's a lot of smelly little bits here that cumulatively sound like a really corrupt administration and I think the stories that are going to come out after Trudeau's out of power so he no longer can sort of wield control over a ton of different people, I think it's going to be epic and disgusting. Okay, let me just say something to Michelle. I know you can't hear some things, Michelle. That's something that we ran into before with the phone system. Nothing I can do about it. Uh, We'll just have to ride this out as best we can for the minutes we have left. Um, So how do we then look at the performance of the other party leaders? Is Andrew Scheer properly and effectively taking advantage of the opportunity that exists before him? Or if you look at the national polling numbers, and he's been on this program quite a bit recently, uh, when you look at the national polling numbers, which show if an election were held today, he'd form he'd be the prime minister tomorrow, prime minister-elect tomorrow. Uh, is he just benefiting from Trudeau's um, wobbliness, or is he doing? Is he being an effective? Uh, potential next prime minister. And what about Jagmeet Singh and the NDP? And, and with all due respect to Ms. May, she doubled her caucus to two and uh, not going to be prime minister, Ms. May. Not going to be PM. Well, but- I think with Andrew Scheer, it's a bit of both. Um, I don't think the NDP is going to make a comeback. But this really could be an interesting election because it's more than selfies and... Well, there'll be no selfies. I don't think there'll be any selfies, Michelle. I don't think we're going there. (laughs) I don't think he's going to go there. No, and... But... You know, it's going to be, I think, a dramatic fall. Well, it's it's going to be... When the leaves... It'll be autumn leaves come on down, that's for sure. Okay, I'm uh, not what about saying he's going to lose everything? Yeah. But I think enough that the at least the Liberal Party used to give a leader a couple of kicks at the can. Mm-hmm. And recent history shows no that doesn't Dion um Well, you know, you got you had Dion, you had Ignatieff who was of course your favorite leader. Oh, um. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but they used to, the, the you know, historically, right. 
they'd give you a couple runs. Yeah, it won't happen this but time. now, no. Um, what about, uh, Linda, what do you make of the performance of, of Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh? Uh, with due respect to Ms. May, we'll talk about. I invited her on the show uh, twice now, and she won't come on. Oh, my goodness. Well, one thing, I want to go back to our two independent like ladies. questions, Good I guess. them that they didn't cross the floor to the Green Party. Uh, I, I, I give them marks for that. Uh, having said Andrew Shear, I think he can be a lot tougher. Roy, just my gut feel. Um, he has been vocal, I will say, on the floor um, Parliament. Um, but I, I just, I, I, oh, God, I just, I wish he would just be a little bit more vocal. As for the NDP leader, um, I'm sorry, I still see a weakness. Okay, there, I, I'm going to uh, stop because I have 30 seconds here. Okay. Uh, Catherine Andrew Shear, is he not doing what he should do, or is the media not giving him a fair shake? Well, I think um, the media definitely isn't giving him a fair shake in this ridiculous panel that uh, has oh, yeah. been convened to decide how to divvy up all kinds of taxpayer dollars to media. To me, is is banana republic territory and disgusting in the extreme. I was at a dinner just this past week with Andrew Shear. Not just me, but <laughs> Andrew Shear was there. I had a chat with him. And, you know, he's such a down-to-earth, decent, practical, smart uh, guy. Uh, he doesn't have the pizzazz, I guess, that a Trudeau does, but I don't really see that as a bad thing, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, and I think he's starting to come out with his policy now. He's done a bunch of speeches. Uh, he, he's going to be doing more. And so, you know, like they say, a week is an eternity in politics. Right. We've got about five months left before the election. I hope he ups his game. Thank you so much, beauties. Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson. Beauties and the Beast, we'll come back periodically and uh, we'll do it again. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 